Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go speechtherapypd.com slash keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Thanks for joining us on Keys for SLPs for this episode, Keys to Developing Voice Therapy Skills. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs and receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. Tor Spence is the clinical lead speech therapist in the Upper Airway Service in the city of Oxford. She is the owner of a private practice. Tor received compensation for this presentation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. And now, here's a little bit about our guest today. Tora Spence is a speech-language therapist in the United Kingdom. She has worked for the NHS as a speech therapist for almost 15 years and is currently employed as the clinical lead speech therapist in the Upper Airway Service in the city of Oxford. She has practiced privately since 2014 and owns VoiceFit, a private speech therapy practice. Tor loves helping people overcome complex, voice and upper airway disorders that can affect health and quality of life as part of a team of ENT doctors, respiratory physicians, respiratory physiotherapists, and vocal coaches in both the NHS and private sectors. VoiceFit specializes in the treatment of voice disorders as well as chronic cough and athletes with exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction. Tor has always enjoyed supporting and mentoring therapists who want to specialize in voice. She is a student clinical placement coordinator. She also works with individuals and groups to provide bespoke voice training and supervision in the UK and internationally. Tor recently launched an online voice skills course for developing voice therapists. Welcome, Tor. Thank you, Mary Beth. Thanks for asking me on the podcast. It's really lovely to be here. Well, I am so happy to have you here and learn about voice therapy training as well as the course that you are now providing. So, um, and learn a little bit about what it is like to be a um, speech language therapist 
on the other side of the pond. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. Tell us about, um, well, first of all, in, in England, um, you don't use the term speech language pathologist, but we've, we've had several conversations and a speech language therapist in England and a speech language pathologist in the United States are, um, equivalent, uh, titles, just different titles. So, um, can you tell us about your journey as an SLT? Yes, of course. Yeah, that's right. So we call ourselves speech and language therapists as opposed to pathologists. So thank you for referring to me as an SLT. And often in UK healthcare, we're referred to actually as SALT, which can be a bit confusing when you hear where is the SALT or someone's being referred to SALT. (laughs) Yeah, or the patient needs SALT, something like that. It can be a bit confusing, but um, I call myself an SLT. So thank you. So my journey to speech therapy began um, around 1999 when it was the career selected for me in an kind of automated survey at a career, a school careers fair, I think. Um, so I, I, it was suggested very early on to me that it might be a good career for me. And I ended up going to Newcastle University in the northeast of England and studying as an undergraduate on a four-year speech and language sciences course. And my interest in voice was first sparked quite early on that course in a clinical placement in a hospital in North Tyneside. And I had a really inspiring clinical educator who got me considering voice as a specialty. And I've never forgotten how enthusiastic and into voice I became thanks to that clinical educator. And it really shaped how I supervise students, I think, and the experience I try to give them today. So I was a generalist therapist for a few years um, in a, an acute, a big acute hospital for the National Health Service um, when I first graduated. And then within roughly about three years, I was beginning to specialize in voice and I just work in voice and upper airway um, conditions now. And I think, you know, the most in, important influential factor in my journey was definitely an inspiring mentor and it made my journey much easier. And that's what's really shaped the therapist I've become today. So I work in the National Health Service and in private practice, like you said, and I see patients and I teach and supervise voice therapists as well. Well, wonderful. Well, it's, it really sounds like the mentor you had inspired you. And now you are really paying it forward um, through your work, uh, supervising clinicians and teaching uh, both nationally and internationally, um, as well as developing this online course. So um, that that is it's so great to see things come for, full circle like that. We have mentioned the NHS, and um, it just dawned on me that maybe we should define that for our listeners. We've talked about it a lot, but for some people might not be familiar with that term. Can you explain what the NHS is before we dive in? Yes, of course. So the NHS or the National Health Service um, is a public healthcare service that provides free healthcare services to everyone in the UK. Um, it's divided into local NHS trusts who act as individual employers. Um, And most speech and language therapists in the UK will at some point in their career work in the NHS, but they don't have to. I've always worked for the NHS and I divide now divide my time between National Health Service work and private practice. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that clarification. So what is the process of training as an SLT in the UK? So the normal route of training in the UK is that you have to complete a registered degree level university course to practice as a speech therapist. 
I think in the UK, there are about 19 different university speech therapy courses, either undergraduate courses, um, which are three or four years, or postgraduate courses, um, which are about two years. And all the courses are a combination of academic learning and clinical placement hours, which I'm sure reflects what happens in the US. Um, on successful completion of, a, of an accredited course, um, you're able to apply to the Health and Care Professions Council um, to register to practice in the UK and then to use the protected title of speech and language therapist. And you also become a member of our um, professional body, um, the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists. So I know in the US you have ASHA, which is both your professional membership body and your regulator. Um, but in the UK, that's separated into the HCPC and the Royal College. Okay. All right. And so, um, uh, so then you, there's also an apprenticeship that follows that, right? <laughs> Yes. So there's a, actually that's um, a new um, development in the UK. So the Royal College is supporting um, these new degree apprenticeships in speech and language therapies. They haven't started yet. I believe the first two universities to offer these apprenticeships are going to, it's going to be in October 2022. It's quite an exciting new development in England because only in England at present, um, because it really aims to make the profession more diverse and accessible to people. So an apprentice will be employed most likely by the NHS or perhaps a large private practice of speech therapists. And they will be an employee while they study towards their speech therapy degree as part of their employment. Um, and they oh, receive a okay. salary over the four years that they are training whilst also practicing and working in that company. So um, it combines, again, the direct clinical work and off-site academic learning through um, the university that's also involved. So it's an interesting concept. It's still very early days um, and more information will be released by the Royal College of Speech Therapists in over the next 12 months, I'm sure. So if that sounds interesting to anyone listening, then um, it's worth keeping an eye on their guidance. That is interesting. Do you know if um, international students are eligible or would it be just for citizens of the UK? I believe it will be eligible for international students but actually to be honest with you there's a question mark over that in my mind I haven't okay. um, yet got a, an actual a confirmed answer to that but if the, if anyone is interested um, they're only happening in England not all across the UK to start with and there's only two universities that are starting um, I don't know what you know, don't know what the demand or the uptake will be or how many people international or just in England they'll be accepting. But definitely watch this space if it sounds interesting to you. Yeah, it sounds interesting for uh, students, potentially inter international students. But it also sounds interesting um, just from a professional perspective. If um, we might, after you guys try it out, if uh, we might start programs like that here in the U.S. So very interesting. Um, do you know if, if in the apprenticeship program is time owed to the employer after the apprenticeship is over? No, I believe not. No. So I know that the apprentice will have a contractual agreement with the employer that employs them whilst they're studying the course. And I think my understanding is that the hope is that there'll be that an accredited apprenticeship will lead to a newly qualified job if the apprentice completes it successfully. Whether it's in that NHS trust or not, I don't think it needs to be. I don't think it has to be. 
um, it'll all depend on, on what's on offer in that particular workplace, I think. Very interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, so what additional training is required for developing as a voice therapist? Okay, so I know I'm biased, but ENT and voice really is a fantastic specialty. Um, and I just absolutely adore my job and helping people with their voice and throat problems and, and helping people identify what further training they need to develop in, in this specialty. So there are no specific essential further training requirements, none set in stone that you have to do to work in the voice specialty. Okay. Um, and in my opinion, the key to learning and developing in voice are, first of all, working within the voice clinical guidelines set in the UK by the Royal College of Speech Therapists. And I'm sure ASHA also have their voice clinical guidelines. Developing a voice specialty in the workplace alongside a caseload and with supervision is a, is a really key part of, of developing. It's not direct training, but it's an incredibly important part of development. Also working towards a set of voice knowledge and skills competencies is really important. There are no, actually in the UK, there are no published official voice therapy competencies, but most speech therapists will work towards achieving a set of their own or, or local competencies that have been set by their team. And okay. I've actually been involved in creating competencies um, at three stages. So one for the developing voice therapist, another level for the specialist voice therapist, and another for the consultant voice therapist. Um, I also think identifying what specific training courses will add value to your skills and your workplace is really important. So, you know, in the UK, we've got regional voice clinical excellence networks, which provide training and study days on various voice topics. And we've got the British Voice Association and the British Laryngological Association, which do the same. They put training and study days on for people. And then there's lots of external voice courses, of course, that are available, um, including my own, <laughs> um, but also many excellent speech therapy PD courses internationally, international available courses. Um, so it's usually a case of identifying as you go, as you develop, which course or training opportunities will best suit your development and your workplace. Are those available internationally or are those just available to voice therapists in the UK? So our clinical excellence networks are only available to members of the Royal College. Yeah, so um, they would only be available to people in in the UK. Um, but yeah, I'm sure over in, in the US there, I don't know for sure, but I'm sure, you know, there's a combination of training available for the voice therapists. There's no, not not one set course or way that you have to develop after you've graduated. Um, but it's, it's what training needs suit you as you go. I think what your, where your particular interests might lie or what particular techniques you want to learn and how to add to your voice therapy toolbox in that sense. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, that makes sense. So Tor, do you find that there's a lot of um, crossover or collaboration between voice therapist in the UK and voice therapist in the US? I think absolutely. We share knowledge and information. We, I love to build contacts with other voice therapists in the US and across the world. Um, and I know, you know, I've attended training days in the past where there have been international speakers 
Um, and I think it's a really important collaboration. Um, and I, I know I'm going to talk about this a, a bit later, but I, but that's why I particularly love building contacts on social media and networking and, and, and meeting as many people as possible who work in the, in the area of the voice specialty. Um, so we can learn from each other across the globe. It is exciting that social media has made it so easy to access people um, all around the globe. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you think about yeah. if you think about the ability to quickly contact someone um, fifteen years ago as opposed to today, it's it's really night and day. All right. Um, so, um, what is the role of a supervisor? I know that you. Um, work with clinical placements and you have supported many voice therapists, but um, in the UK in particular, what is the role of a supervisor in supporting SLTs as they develop as a voice therapist? So for me, I think supervision is one of the most key elements of developing as a voice therapist. Of course, there are training courses and direct skills voice skills, voice exercises and techniques that you want and need to learn about. But really to develop um, and to enhance your skills and really facilitate the patients, I think that supervision is a really key part of, of learning and developing in that area. So if we first consider what supervision is, um, supervision is the formal, non-judgmental, confidential arrangement between you and someone who's experienced and qualified. Um, it's an arrangement that enables you to discuss your work regularly. And Supervision enables efficient, good quality therapists and a good service. So it enables us as individual therapists to identify and manage our own development and any risk. And in, in the UK, for sure, the Royal College advises 60 minutes of professional supervision every four to six weeks. So in the context of my work in today's topic, um, it's essential that developing voice therapists can access that professional or clinical supervision every four to six weeks. And I say more in the early days. Um, it'll depend on your workplace. But I would really encourage people in that first um, sort of 12 months, let's say, of working clinically in voice that you have a, a weekly or fortnightly opportunity to discuss things with a with a supervisor or a mentor. Because um, you need that opportunity, don't you, to reflect on your clinical practice and and the actual cases and learn from them. And supervision gives you a forum to ask the difficult questions and solve clinical problems that you might have encountered and sometimes just get another opinion from someone. Um, and in my own experience, good quality supervision can lead to a greater sense of job satisfaction and an enjoyment in a specialty. Uh, my journey into voice was significantly shaped by a really superb mentor who guided and encouraged me. Um, so when when I'm considering a supervision session with a speech therapist I'm working with, I'm going to aim to support that person with like, accountable decision making and clinical practice and support them with their learning and their professional development. It's quite nice to find out their preferred method of learning and being supervised first because that's quite a personal thing. And there's a structured supervision that is always more beneficial, I believe, and good to get some terms of reference um, set and know what your role is as a supervisor and what the, what the supervisee wants to achieve, because that may change throughout their development as well. Right, right. And keeping that um, dialogue open, feeling free to ask those difficult uh, clinical 
and professional questions. It's so important to um, have that supervisor. Um, so uh, what are there challenges for people to get adequate supervision in or, or to get, um, you know, to find the mentors do you find in the UK or do you feel like it's easy for people to um, get the supervision? I think it can be challenging. I think it'll very much depend on your unique circumstances and your opportunities um, to develop in, in your workplace. For example, if you start in a new job, um, a new voice job, um, you're bound to have um, the setup of the supervision set up there. Um, it would be unusual to start in a new job and there be a complete lack of supervision if you are new to that specialty. Um, but there are, of course, people in other specialties who are interested in voice. Um, and in my experience, it's for those therapists where it's quite hard to access sufficient amounts of professional supervision and, and training in their workplace while they're developing their skills. Um, and I think that may be because there aren't that many voice specialists around, particularly in some regions. I think supervision is a commitment, both in time and sometimes financially for people as well. And I also think a challenge is that when we're busy and time is really stretched, that supervision is often the professional activity that's sacrificed first. Um, but ironically, I think it's usually when we're most in need of clinical reflection, um, when we're really busy and stretched, and we need that time to check in and get some guidance at that time. So I wonder who listening to this receive the same amount of professional supervision during the COVID pandemic as they did beforehand. Because um, I can probably say that I didn't, um, just given circumstances and the pressures. And um, But it, it is so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, well, during the pandemic, it was, uh, you know, very challenging um, to have, uh, you know, it, supervising on Zoom is very different than supervising um, in the same room, face to face, um, being able to ask questions as they come up. Um, it, it's very different than it. Um, uh, in-person versus online. And then, of course, there can be some advantages online um, as well, but um, there are some challenges. Yes. Um, yeah. What do you, with new clinicians um, that you're supervising, um, what are some of the clinical questions brought to a supervision session that most often? Oh, there's some some real sort of classic questions that get asked or topics that are brought to supervision. But like I said before, I really like to get people thinking and planning for supervision before it happens, working out how they best feel they should be supervised and want to be and how best they learn. But my, I suppose my main goals when someone asks me for supervision or wants supervision in terms of their voice development, I really want to encourage critical reflective practice and give them an opportunity to learn from the experiences they're having clinically. That might be via a specific voice case or a case example. And someone might bring a question to me like, oh, I don't know how to help this specific voice client or I haven't come across, I haven't worked with this diagnosis yet. And they know the basics and they're building their knowledge and skills, but they need time to, to reflect and think practically about how they can work with a, a specific patient or look back over a case. 
Um, and I also want to help people increase their confidence around their, their voice clinical practice, making sure that they're relating practice to theory and theory to practice and that all that their work is evidence-based. Um, so some classic questions I might get asked in a voice supervision session around cases. Like I said, I don't know how to help this particular voice client. Should I discharge this client? When should I discharge them? How do I know if they're ready? Um, how do I handle this particular situation? Uh, something like I want to come, I want to work with this client, but I'm not sure if my skills are right or good enough in this new area. So I would help speech therapists identify opportunities relating to their development goals. What? How do you want to develop? Where, where are the gaps? And then actually, I take it one step further sometimes and help people with specific voice training needs and provide training sessions to help them attain those goals. Excellent. Well, it really sounds like the people who you supervise um, really are uh, have some advantages of having you as a supervisor because obviously you really go above and beyond. Oh, well, it's something I really love doing because I, I saw the value of it when I was developing myself. Um, and it's just so important not to work, you know, as a lone ship, particularly when you're developing, uh, whether it's peer support or alongside this profession idea of professional supervision um to me it's just really crucial and yeah having a free and open dialogue and feeling free to ask any clinical questions and not being afraid to look um incompetent because you're asking the question is so important yes hence that really kind of safe confidential environment you need that for for a supervision environment mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely um all right well you have done um a lot of training and worked with so many speech language but well whoops i almost said it <laughs> so many slts <laughs> <laughs> Although just just for clarification, uh, for anyone who is interested in, and we'll talk about it later, um, your voice training, it is your voice training is for SLTs, as well as SLPs. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So I, I have um, had had meetings and supervision sessions with people in other countries. Um, so definitely, yes, I, I love working with people all over the place. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so what are your top tips for SLTs who want to develop their voice skills in and outside of the clinical setting? So I know we, we talked, you know, some people are in that clinical setting, but some people want to develop, but they don't really have that clinical setting available to them. So what would be your top tips? Yeah, I thought, I know in discussion, I, I definitely felt that it was important to think about it inside and outside of the clinical setting for that very reason, because a lot of people are coming to me and saying, I don't have a voice caseload yet, but I really want to develop in that area. How do I do it um, if I can't get the opportunities at work? So, I mean, the, num the, the first top tip is to try and find the relevant clinical experiences, no matter what your work setting is. So, it's trying to perhaps think about seeking out voice patients where you are, if there, if there are any there. So, you know, pediatric therapists are say, you know, talk to your team about whether there are any pediatric voice cases coming through um, and can you work with a few of those cases or can you sit in and observe some of those cases? If you're an acute SLT on, on an inpatient ward, 
put a bit more emphasis on voice assessment of the patients and using perceptual voice assessments and thinking about voice, for example, on a stroke unit. Um, chat with your ENT colleagues or other friendly ENT departments and attend a voice clinic if you possibly can. Um, if you aren't yet in a job or a workplace, then consider, you know, just phoning or emailing your local speech therapy team, ask around, see if you can spend a morning observing. It might not be possible, particularly in the current climate. Um, There are some restrictions I know where I work around um, observation, people coming in for observation, but it means, you know, at least you've introduced yourself to a team and they know who you are and they're always able to keep you posted if an opportunity or a vacancy comes up in the future. So yeah, that would be my, my first tip. Just seek out any opportunities you can. Um, my second one is about finding yourself a mentor or a supervisor, particularly if you have started working clinically, someone who's experienced in voice, but also someone that you feel you can relate to as well, professionally and or personally, you know, I know you might not get much choice. You might not know straight away whether you're going to gel with someone, your options might be limited, but that supervision relationship really has to be honest and mutual trust and respect has has to be there for it to be successful. Um, and I think, you know, consider supervision perhaps as a little bit of an investment. I think we're all quite tempted to spend all our CPD money, whatever monies are available to us on kind of technique training and study days and learning how to do this exercise and this one. Um, but I would urge people to consider a balance when you're spending money on on training, think about supervision as well, because it can be an incredible learning experience. And it can be very beneficial to find someone as well who can guide and support you through like the interview process for voice jobs, for example, as well. Um, oh, that's a good point. So the next top tip for me is around networking and meeting voice specialists. Um, don't miss out on the amazing connections you can make via social media. Um, I haven't been on social media very long, only since around March 2020. Um, but there are fantastic training, learning, connection opportunities. And I've met some of the most kind of fascinating and relatable like-minded people and friends on, on social media, particularly in the world of voice. It's really opened many new doors for me. Um, and allowed me to build a community. And I would really urge people to have a go at that. It can take some time and, you, you know, it takes a bit of work uh, to, to meet and, and feel confident in kind of chatting and just asking questions to people online. But it's, it's yeah, it's an amazing resource, which we, we shouldn't really miss out on. Um, and then my next tip is about always being really voice aware ourselves and getting competent with our own instrument and just you know aware of what our own voice is doing and um, what we're hearing what we're feeling in our own voices I think you know any speech therapist will need their voice won't they to do their job but the voice therapist needs that extra bit of sort of pizzazz and awareness of their voice Um, not only because it's better to be seen to following you know, your own advice where possible. Exactly. Um, but you have to be able to teach and demonstrate techniques and be self-aware of the phonatory process and how it feels and how to achieve different qualities so that you can facilitate your patients. Um, so yeah, just, just think about the easy ways to look after your own voice. You know, don't neglect your own voice, particularly if you're trying to facilitate people to really look after theirs. 
um, seek advice if you're worried about your voice as a speech therapist. Um, yeah, so just really be aware of your own instrument. Um, That's a very good point. That, yeah, it's something that not everyone can always considers. Considers, I think, when I'm particularly when I'm working with student speech therapists, that's um, something I talk about a lot with people. It's like, yes, you're here to work with the patient, but you need your precious instrument to do that. Um, so really consider your own voice as well. Um, and then the next top tip for for anyone interested in voice and voice therapy is just to you know listen, read, and watch as many things as you can. Um, it's just quite amazing what's out there that you can access, whether that's listening to podcasts or reading um, the old, particularly those old classic voice texts, which I've put a list of in the handout to go with this um, podcast. Um, and you know, YouTube is a fantastic resource just for. You know, even if it's watching a, a laryngeal surgery or listening to lectures about voice, um, you know, there's, yeah, just sort of surfing the net, looking for things, exploring images of the larynx online. Um, yeah, so all sorts of things, just just looking out for whatever you can, just showing an interest in in everything that's available. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the last the, thing. Uh, Oh, I was just going to say that um, the old text in your reference uh, list are so good for an overview and um, and in, and for specifics too. Like we don't want to discount the old text because of it, um, you know, so well researched. But to be able to really visualize um, everything that is available on YouTube and uh, through social media um, is really helpful as well. So combining um, the old and the new. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Those old texts are, you know, it's about the overview, isn't it, Mary Beth? Particularly when you're developing um, in those early days, you know, you want a well-rounded view of the whole sort of voice therapy process. And then ongoing throughout your your career, you're obviously keeping track of new research and and journals that... um, that are put out there and that's incredibly important but yeah I mean I spend if I come I come across some brilliant new videos all the time on YouTube and resources and things I'm constantly saving into little folders and and keeping for for another time where I think it might be useful for a patient or for myself um and I think the last tip um is a bit of a kind of myth busting tip um in a sense, you, you don't have to be a singer or a performer to be a good voice therapist. Um, I think the reason I'm bringing this up is because I get lots of messages from people who say they love the idea of specializing in voice, um, but they can't sing. And pe- sometimes people assume that a voice therapist um, or Guilty voice therapy. Charged. Can- <laughs> yeah. I, in graduate school, I loved my voice therapy course, but I am 100% tone deaf as <laughs> my oldest child, when he was um, not even three, told me. He said, he told me to stop singing. And I said, what? I'm not a good singer. And he actually was very um, astute, even at that young age. He said, you're a good cooker but you're not a good singer. (laughs) (laughs) And and he, he actually uh, inherited other genes so he can sing. So he could tell right away. Anyway, I am tone deaf. So as a graduate student, and there are others out there who may be listening. So this is so important. If you are tone deaf, you are not a singer, you can still go into voice. So uh, please share with us. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I know it's advantageous, of course, to have knowledge and understanding about performance and, and the singing voice. Absolutely. That can be so helpful. Um, and I've see, often seen it as a route into the voice specialty for people. They've been a performer or a singer, or they've got a particular interest in that, and it sparked their interest into voice. And I completely understand that pathway. Um, but I don't want people to assume that a voice therapy caseload is predominantly performers and singers, because that's that's not always the case at all. Um, there's a huge number of other people who have speaking voice disorders and laryngeal disorders. Um, so it's not it's not all about the the singing and performance voice. And whatever sparks your interest in voice, it's really really valid. Whatever a previous experience is, or just an interest, doesn't have to be a previous experience. It might just be because you like the sort of medical physiological side of voice or you like working with ENT or um you know so it's, so it's, yeah I just want to to put that point across to people really is that it's yes you're working with the voice but you're not necessarily working with the singing voice you're working with the larynx and the medical side of the larynx and laryngeal function um and you can learn in time about singing you can even train yourself in singing if you want to I don't sing like you Mary Beth you don't sing I don't sing I like a bit of a sing song but I don't sing and um yeah I'm, I'm not a good singer um but I don't feel that is a negative when it comes to my practice because I've learned to work with performers I've learned from them I've done additional training Excellent. Excellent. Well, I love the way that you said, um, whatever sparks your interest is valid. That is good advice for the voice world and, and good advice in life. Whatever <laughs> sparks your interest is valid. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, all right. So um, we've talked about your um, online voice uh, skills training course that you've developed. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm delighted to. So this is a, a training course that I've developed based on my own experience of developing in a voice specialty and also my experience from guiding other speech therapists with their voice development. So as part of my um, NHS role for a few years, I was contracted out to a community team, uh, communities, a group of generalist speech therapists who also wanted to develop in, in voice. So my role was around setting up a competency framework and putting in place supervision and training to um, support those therapists. And over the years, it just really got me thinking about what, what could be out there to help people in that first 12 months of working in voice or as they think about considering a voice specialty. Um, okay. I wanted to create something that people could follow that would be quite comprehensive and but also flexible. Um, and then, you know, the COVID pandemic came along and I was working from home a lot more like everyone was. And I started to think about, you know, something online, something that can be accessed in someone's own time um, from home easily, quite a kind of modern approach to enhancing your voice therapy skills. So, born out of that was voice fit to practice so it's an online voice knowledge and skills training course and it's particularly okay, and that's what it's called voice fit to practice yes voice fit okay. to practice okay 
Okay. And I think it's particularly relevant to therapists where the learning opportunities in their workplace in voice might be limited. Um, and it's designed to be comprehensive across all the voice knowledge and skills competencies um, for the developing voice therapists. So really, like I said, in that first 12 months of, of working, ideally, it should be studied alongside a caseload of patients and supervision in your workplace. But if not, I think it's still suitable because it's full of case studies and examples to work from if you don't have an active caseload yourself. Okay, well, that sounds so helpful to the uh, generalist as well as the therapist who wants to specialize in voice. Um, so can you tell us what those competencies are and, and kind of describe the structure? Yeah, absolutely. So I've, I've set, I've put together a set of competencies, um, which look at knowledge and skills in certain areas of the voice therapy pathway. And I've split the voice fit to practice course into modules to reflect those areas of competency so and with when you buy my course you get access to all the materials and all the kind of presentations and lectures for six months so you can watch them you know more than once and there's also handouts and presentation slides that are all downloadable so you have your set of competencies which can be signed off in your workplace or I can sign them off if you want to have supervision with me during the course um, but it's seven modules so voice physiology so looking at sort of the knowledge um, and the theory and the evidence into voice physiology laryngeal anatomy how the larynx works how the voice works before you even get started you really want to kind of go back to go back to where it all started you know go back to you know what you learned in graduate school what you already know about the voice and um, and learn as much as you can using that uh, competency module. Yeah, I, in my experience, in my own personal experience, certainly when you're studying um, your speech therapy course, of course, there's lots of kind of physiology and anatomy that goes with that. Um, but when it comes to this course and those early days of developing clinically in a, in the job setting, for example, I think go. I've tried to go back over the most relevant aspects of laryngeal anatomy and voice physiology. So obviously it's a huge topic in itself, but what's really relevant to that first 12 months of working autonomously as a therapist with a voice caseload, I've really tried to include what I feel, in my opinion, is relevant in, in those early stages. So there's more advanced physiology that it, that exists in terms of voice therapy, but um, does that make sense? I've tried to really gear it towards um, the developing Absolutely, therapist. that makes sense. And that's helpful um, to the general therapist who wants to go back to voice, but maybe they don't have um, time to review everything that they learned in their voice course from a full semester. So to be able to use that competency and really hone in on what's, um, what's important for therapy. Yes, that that's my hope. That's my my hope. And so and then the next one is lar the next module on the course is laryngeal pathologies and diagnostics. So that involves the knowledge around um how voice disorders are diagnosed, the ENT pathways, um the different pathologies. So I use a classification um 
of voice disorders model and I talk about the you know the structural pathologies muscle tension imbalance inflammatory pathologies neuromuscular pathologies um, and really aim to sort of build people's knowledge and awareness of all the different possible um, diagnostics that you'll come across. But again, I have very much thought about it from that developing therapist point of view. There are uh, there are more there are other pathologies and more complex conditions that exist in in the voice specialty. But I haven't necessarily gone into the level of detail that I would consider for a like a highly specialist or a consultant voice therapist. I've kept it within those boundaries that I feel are appropriate for working in the first 12 months. Okay. Okay. And just to clarify, when you, at the beginning, you said um, kind of three different levels and, you know, the beginning that the highly specialized and then the consultant voice therapist. So what, what is a consultant voice therapist? Well, I could answer that question in a few ways. I mean, in in terms of um, jo- different jobs, say in the National Health Service, jobs are banded. We call them bans, pay bans. Um, where you are on on that level will will indicate whether you are, say, a newly qualified developing therapist, specialist, highly specialist, or consultant. Okay. But what might be more relevant here is I'm from what I've developed is the developing voice competencies, the specialist voice competencies, and the consultant voice competencies. At a consultant level, it comes with time and experience and really some of those advanced clinical skills. Um, For example, performing laryngoscopy and nasendoscopy as a therapist or being more involved in the diagnostics or the really complex um, second opinions um, and and specialist clinics. So that would be more at consultant level. This course, Voice Fit to Practice, is only aiming at the developing voice therapist. Okay. Maybe there'll be more courses to come from me in the future looking at the other levels. Well, that would be wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so we have the um, physiology and anatomy, and then we have patholo- p- pathologies. 51. We need to delete that first pathologies. Okay. So we have pathologies and what comes next? Um, what comes next is assessment of the voice patient. So module three is, is looking at how you would perceptually, objectively, acoustically, how, how are you going to assess that, per- that person's voice, but also them as a person. Um, so it goes into detail about case history taking, um, Quest, you know, styles of questioning, um, how to be person-centered, how to um, be an active listener, um, all the sorts of ins and outs and complexities of, of assessing the voice patient. Um, and then after that, the next module is around case management planning. So I think that's a really important part of the th- therapy process. You think, well, I've assessed the patient. I've got all this information. Um, now what? You know, I, I want to plan how I'm going to manage this case. That might be around goal setting. That might be around managing expectations. Um, you know, all, all those sorts of elements of building this case, working out how to treat them, what they actually need um, before you move forward with your direct treatment. Um uh, and that's actually where supervision can come in particularly important um, with, yes. with case management planning. 
Um, and, just, and then the treatment. Say, of- I just as speaking of supervision, you did say um, along with this course, um, the people get uh, certain hours of supervision, and then you can also pay for more supervision. Yes. So included in the the cost of of the course of Voice Fit to Practice is two supervision sessions with me. And people who um, take part in this course can decide whether they want that at the beginning or at the end or in the middle of the six month period after they've bought the course. Um, And it completely depends on what, what they need. It'll be very much them leading the session in terms of what what they want to achieve whether they want it case-based for example whether they want it to be more of a learning experience um yeah so so yeah but that's something i definitely offer and if people want more supervision because they can't access it in their own workplace then i happily provide that Um, okay all right thank you what an excellent service so okay so next competency so the next the next module the next area of competency really is around you know the intervention and the treatment of the voice patient so you've you've understood what's wrong with them or what the what the diagnosis is you've collected all this information and assessed them you've set their goals you've managed their expectations they're ready to go and then it's now now what do we do so i've tried tried to make this this module um, about treatment really practical and provide um, really information and, and training in this module around specific techniques. Try to keep it really highly evidence based in terms of indirect approaches to voice care and health um, and, you know, breath work, relaxation, posture work. And then I've talked a lot about sort of um, some of the direct therapy techniques that can be used and when and how and how to use those techniques but also to help patients carry over and generalize the improvements in in their voice Um, and really tried to link that with goal setting and prognosis um, working out what what's achievable and, and how with different diagnostics and different patients and then the next I put the next module is around the discharge process but as well as thinking directly about how to discharge the patient it's that module's really reflecting on the process of what do we do if this technique's not working and or something changes and we're not sure what to do next i've really gone into this i to talk about you know what what are the barriers to change how can we identify those in our voice patients if they're not improving as we hoped they would or as we expected them to um yeah, so that that's that's the the sixth module, and then the seventh module is is a sort of bonus module which looks it, ha, it includes features from other voice professionals, including a vocal coach, um, and I've done a, a detailed reference guide and list, and I've done a, a presentation on on how to use social media as a speech therapist as well, which I thought was just a little kind of bonus extra bonus yes yeah (laughs) something I've I've loved doing and I I just thought it would be helpful to put in a little extra presentation on that um yeah so that that, really is comprehensive um and such a valuable uh tool for those who would like to delve into the voice world who who may be you know graduate students thinking about it or maybe they've been um in in another setting and are thinking about going into voice it really is a great resource so um 
that's one great thing about uh, speechtherapypd.com. We really are able to share resources. So um, re we really do appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, so speaking of sharing, <laughs> um, <laughs> there, there are um, many SLPs listening who may th be thinking, wow, or, or I think there are many listening who may be thinking, wow, um, it may be interesting to actually work in the UK and share our knowledge from the US with um, those in the UK or collaborate. Um, so let's say that we had an ASHA certified SLP who would like to go to England, um, to the UK to work. Um, do, you, or do you know what that process is and um, how like an ASHA certification would uh, correspond to the um, SLT certification? Yes. So I, I know a little bit about this. Um, there is what's called a mutual recognition agreement or an MRA between okay. the UK, the US, New Zealand, Australia and Northern Ireland. So with this MRA in mind, the the, the movement of speech therapists between these countries should be fairly straightforward and fairly streamlined. I think that's what the nations have, have tried to do. The, you know, the regulators and the professional bodies of those nations have really tried to create or, or set up a process that, that works as well as it can. Um, and there are so yes, both ASHA and Healthcare Professions Council speech therapists in the UK are eligible for mutual recognition. So there shouldn't okay. be any further training required to move your practice between any of these countries. Um, and there's, a, there's various processes within the application um, to go through in terms of um, application forms and, and letters and registration documents and things. But I believe um, moving from the US to the UK, you need at least 12 months of postgraduate professional clinical experience. Okay. So in the, U in the US, that would be your clinical fellowship um, and then a little bit more experience. Right. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I, I think if I'm, I'm right in thinking, I, I think that to move from the UK to America – to ASHA would require you to pass an approved national certification examination. Um, okay. Moving from the US to the UK, you're not required to do any additional exams. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Um, um, so you actually are familiar with someone who has done this and um, it sounds like it's really easy, but there can be some challenges. Absolutely, yes. So I've I've spoken to a lovely uh, lady who I work with in the National Health Service who who did the move a couple of years ago, and I think you know it it did present with its challenges, and I think you know she, it was um poor poor thing it, it you know was mixed into the beginning of the COVID pandemic as well, which no doubt made it more challenging in terms of time, but it is a time intensive process, um, both the application part and the processing time. Um, okay. so it's not, I don't think it's a, a very quick process. And I think, um, she, 
talked about a few sort of little logistical issues around getting hold of the correct paperwork and different certificates, all very doable, but just all took time. And, you know, of course, if you're trying to work or study at the same time, um, it, it just can take take time to get everything that you need. Um, and of course, moving to the UK, you will require separate applications for the HCPC, the regulator, and the Royal College. Um, rather than moving to America and just applying through ASHA, you have to go through, through ASHA. both our, okay. our bodies. Okay, that's interesting. And do you apply for both of those simultaneously, or do you have to apply for one first? And you then have next? to apply for HCPC and have that approved first by, by the, the regulator body. Okay. Um, and, you know, obviously the, the visa processes and, you know, they, they could be fairly complex in, in their own right. But what what this uh, friend of mine did note, note down was that you, you can apply for jobs while you're waiting for your HCPC uh, certificate. Um, and if you're successful finding a job, um, then that support from that UK employer can be really helpful. So if you've interviewed and been offered an NHS job, then um, that can be very useful because then your your NHS employer can help chase the HCPC to complete the process and and help help you get it all fixed and 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 together. So. So would you recommend that someone start the paperwork before um, they even start interviewing or looking or um, find a job and then ask them to help? It probably, to me, it sounds like it would be better to, to start before you even start interviewing because at least the yes, I think process so. is underway. Yeah, I think given that it's probably quite a time-intensive process, particularly the application, physically doing the forms, filling out the applications, working out what needs to be done, I would certainly look to doing to do that first and then during the processing time um, and and waiting for it actually to be processed and and to achieve that certification then yeah go, go for it start looking at jobs start contacting different regions or different NHS trusts in the UK and and chat to them about what's available um, and get their How support is the, on the, process. Uh, the job market for SLTs in the UK as, as, it as changes as all the time. It's it's reasonable. It's a um, little bit unpredictable, particularly in the current climate. Um, funding, in you know, in the National Health Service, for example, um, goes up and down, and it's yeah, it will because the National Health Service operates in regions. Um, okay. It it will depend on the region where where you want to go. Um, if someone moving over from the US had a particular interest in being in London or being up in Scotland or um, being down in Cornwall, or right down in the south, or you know if they've got a particular um, interest in a, in a location, then that might impact on their ability to find a job. There's going to be far more jobs in London, but then there's far more demand for the jobs in London. So exactly, um, it, it will vary hugely. So at least starting off with an open mind and being willing to go to um, different places would probably be helpful for someone. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, now, aside from the visa, because you could get a work visa that would only allow you to be in the UK for so much time. But aside from the visa, as far as the rest of the approval, once you have the approval from both entities, then it it's... Uh, as long as you continue with your CEs, it's lifelong. You don't have to renew um, 
well, you probably have to renew your dues, et cetera, but you don't have to um, redo the paperwork once you have it you have it. Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah. In terms of the mutual recognition agreement, once you are certified to work in in the UK, if you're from the US, then then that would continue. You would then follow the process that all of us in the UK follow, which is to re-register with the HCPC every few years and keep, you know, you have to prove that you've done your 30 hours of continuing professional development a year and occasionally you might be called up for an audit by the HCPC and you'd have to uh, provide that documentation that you've achieved the required amount of of, of development hours um, okay so okay. yes you would yeah, just you would act as a UK to... therapist yeah okay okay that's great well and then for your friend uh, she's been there a couple years now yes and how would how is her transition now is she I think once she'd started, it was it was all fine, you know. And I think she, the process was done. She started her job in the UK. There was no further problems with with the the process of becoming a, a speech therapist in the UK. I think she prob- maybe felt like she underestimated the challenge of, uh, you know, then finding yourself in a in a new country in a in a new workplace with lots of different processes and and systems um and of course it's going to be different in different countries isn't it um but yes. that's the next thing you sort of have to get used to um well very she, encouraging oh go ahead i was going to say she, I, I i know that there is a um slps going abroad facebook group um which um I think seems quite helpful. It's a forum to ask questions and get some support with the process of moving. Um, and of course, the HCPC and, and the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists, if you're thinking about moving to the UK, um, it would be good to to get in touch with them as a kind of fir- the first thing that you do, really look at their websites and work out what needs to be done. Well, excellent advice. Well, thank you very much. Um, and that uh, the Facebook group, the speech uh, speech pathologist going or SLPs going abroad. Yes, um, SLPs going abroad. Yeah, that sounds like another podcast topic. So, thank you. <laughs> All right, well, Tor, we truly appreciate your insight and the education that you provided for us about voice, as well as. Um, helping us understand what it's like to be an SLT on the other side of the pond and um, helping us understand what might be involved if someone is interested in um, working abroad in the UK. So we really appreciate you being with us today. And um, as always, we would love to welcome you back sometime. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, and yeah, I could talk all day about anything to do with voice and really happy for anyone to kind of reach out and start a conversation with me definitely on, on social media or, um, yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, and just for all of our uh, speechtherapypd.com listeners, you provided an excellent handout that we referred to, um, as well as resources. So thank you for those as well. Um, it really helps to, um, have both of those. No problem. All right. Well, have a great day. Thank you. You too. Take care. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.